you, praise band. Lily Morris is headed to Knoxville in a, what, couple months, eight weeks or so. My, well, I think it was my first Sunday, Lily. I, I'd never heard that song before. Uh, what's the, the song you and Maddie did? Um, Yes, King of My Heart, with like a ukulele and a stairwell somewhere, and it was the, the background music to the video from summer camp, and I was like, that song's amazing, those girls sound incredible, and Trey said, yeah, those are two of our, our youth, and they were like 15 at the time or something, and they were just recording this amazing worship song. Uh, we're so blessed to have uh, leadership here. Uh, Lily, we're going to miss you and, and all you seniors as you head off to whatever's next for you in the chapter of your life. If you're missing the choir, don't worry, they're gonna be back in the loft next week, and for the next three weeks, our own Gene Aldridge is gonna be leading us in worship, and the choir's gonna sing that song that we just sang for the offertory next week, The Lord is Our Salvation. It's a powerful song, I, I love it, but uh, Psalm 27.1 was a, a prayer and a cry of praise that, that Hebrew children would learn from a young age to sing, and it, it said, the Lord is my salvation, but it said something else, too. It said, the Lord is my light and my salvation. And today, we're going to look at a text from the, the Gospel of John, chapter 8, starting in verse 12, where the Lord Jesus proclaims, I am the light of the world. And when he says he's the light of the world, he's confirming that he is our light and our salvation. It's a beautiful text. Today's June. Can you believe it's June already? It's, it's amazing how fast it seems summer has rushed in. I'm, I'm happier with these cooler temperatures, though. Not quite so ready for October yet, but I can, I can afford summer if it's about like it is today. And that means that we're going to launch into this new series, even though we're continuing to walk through the Gospel of John. I talked to a preacher friend from Oklahoma yesterday. He said, how's that going, walking through John for a year? And I said, it's been really neat. It's been really cool and well-received generally. People seem to really be blessed as we walk through verse by verse this entire amazing book of John. And I, I looked at the five texts. There's five Sundays in June. And each one of these texts that we're going to be in for the month of June really centers around a common theme of the supremacy of Christ above all, that he is the great I am, that he is the greatest good, the greatest entity in all of the universe, in all of the multiverse, or whatever you want to call it, that Jesus Christ is superior and supreme above all. He is our light and our salvation. So we're, we're going to be looking at several instances in this gospel throughout this month where Jesus makes a, a statement about himself. We call these the I am statements of Jesus. And just like we're seeing these signs that Jesus did, signs like feeding the 5,000, signs like walking on the water, we, we see these signs that point to Jesus' identity as the unique son of the living God. And there's seven of them in the Gospel of John. There's also seven I am statements that Jesus makes about himself. He says, I am, and he, he uses a, a metaphor, like I am the door of the sheep, as we're going to see in a couple weeks. Or I am the good shepherd in John 10. 
But others are not metaphoric. We're going to see next week how he says, before Abraham was, I am. That's an absolute statement that he makes. Now Thomas is making noise. I love it. (laughs) That's great. Thanks for waiting, buddy, because my record's still intact of making it around the sanctuary. So, whew. You can make all the noise he wants now. It doesn't bother me. Jesus makes these I am statements to reveal himself out of love in gracious self-revelation to us, his children. We've already seen the first I am statement. Do you remember what that was? Back in John chapter 6, right after Jesus feeds the 5,000 from one little boy's lunch, he makes the statement in chapter 6, verse 35, I am the bread of life, right? That's a metaphor. He's saying if you eat of me, if you partake of me, if you ingest me and dwell in me, you will never hunger again. And this morning, we're going to examine the second I am statement that Jesus makes in the Gospel of John. So let's stand together, if you're able, in honor of God's Word, as I read aloud our text from John chapter 8, verses 12 through 30. Hear now the Word of the Lord. Again, Jesus spoke to them, saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So the Pharisees said to him, you're bearing witness about yourself. Your testimony is not true. Jesus answered, even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true. For I know where I came from and where I'm going. But you do not know where I come from or where I am going. You judge according to the flesh. I judge no one. Yet even if I do judge, my judgment is true. For it is not I alone who judge, but I and the Father who sent me. In your law it is written that the testimony of two men is true. I am the one who bears witness about myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness about me. They said to him, therefore, where is your Father? Jesus answered, you know neither me nor my Father. If you knew me, you would know my Father also. These words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple, but no one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. So he said to them again, I am going away and you will seek me and you will die in your sin. Where I'm going, you cannot come. So the Jews said, will he kill himself? Since he says, where I'm going, you cannot come. He said to them, you are from below. I am from above. You are of this world. I am not of this world. I told you that you would die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. So they said to him, who are you? Jesus said to them, just what I've been telling you from the beginning. I have much to say to you about, and much to say about you and much to judge, but he who sent me is true. And I declare to the world what I've heard from him. They did not understand what he'd been speaking to them about the Father. So Jesus said to them, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he, and that I do nothing on my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me. And he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. 
as he was saying these things, many believed in him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may have a seat. In June of 2003, I had the great privilege to return to Sydney, Australia for the third time in my young life and serve as a ministry intern at the Beverly Hills Baptist Church just outside of Sydney, Australia as a, a, an intern basically with the pastor there. And on one particular Sunday, some of the young adults of the church had organized a day trip out to Wallamai National Park about an hour and a half west of Sydney, just past the Blue Mountains. And Wallamai is famous for having a tunnel that is full of this bioluminescent creature, colloquially known as a glowworm. Glowworms are real. I had a little nightlight when I was a kid, but these are a real thing, at least in Australia. And you can walk deep into this tunnel in the middle of a bright day, and it goes underground, and it's so dark at the bottom of the tunnel that even on a you know, sunny day, you can still see the glowworms in complete darkness because it's completely covered from any natural outside light. And one of the young adults who came on the trip had just bought a fancy new video camera, and it had the ability to have some kind of like infrared night vision thing on it. And unbeknownst to me, he was filming the whole time that we were in this tunnel. And I didn't realize how goofy I looked in the complete darkness until we got back and he replayed the footage on the camera for everyone to see. And I look a little bit like Thomas in the uh, video because I had my hand like this in front of my face and I was going, guys, you can't even see your hand. I can't even see my hand in front of my face. And he's, he's filming this close to my face and I look like a complete goofball. But it was very dark in that tunnel and, and you can't use a flashlight even because it, it ruins the bioluminescent effect of the glowworms. Here's what the website says, and it's, it's classically Australian. This is a government website. This is hilarious to me. Uh, if I could do a good Australian accent, I would, but just imagine, you know, Paul Newman or somebody reading this. Clearly, it's dark, so you need a torch if you don't want to stack it. <laughs> torch meaning flashlight. That's what they call flashlights there. But what you don't want to do is point it at the glowworms. Not only will it damage their bioluminescence, It'll also turn off their lights, rendering your visit completely pointless. Turn it off or point it at the ground once you get to the really worm-heavy bits of the tunnel. Crane your neck back and enjoy the twinkly splendor. <laughs> so as we approach the worms, of course, it's complete darkness. And we're stumbling around, holding on to each other's shoulders, and it's a little bit terrifying because most of us need light to navigate our day-to-day -day existence. Those who are vision impaired have learned to overcome the lack of sight by developing extraordinary skills, but for the rest of us, we need light. We're pretty hopeless without it. You know, science has shown the effect of the lack of light or the type of light uh, on our psyches. You talk about the fluorescent blues, right? If you work in a fluorescent light lit environment, that it can affect your emotions and the way that you, your brain works. 
Many of you know people who have moved to Alaska or have spent significant time in Alaska or Antarctica, the, the, the extreme ends of our planet, where there's only you know, a few hours of daylight in the winter and the effect that can have on someone's soul, right? Seasonal affective disorder is about a lack of light. We need vitamin D from the sun, right? Light is crucial for life to thrive. You know, the flora and fauna of our universe only grow and thrive in places where the light can get in and nourish it and provide that crucial energy. In our text for today, we see Jesus proclaim to these Jewish authorities who have gathered for the Festival of Tabernacles for Sukkot there in Jerusalem, thousands and thousands of Jews from all over Judea who have come up to Jerusalem for the great festival, he tells them that he is the light of the world and that whoever follows him will not walk in darkness but will have the light of life. Again, this is not some random metaphor that he's just pulling out of his hat. This is connected to the festival of Sukkot. Remember, we, we talked about the, when, the water when, when the closing ceremony happened at Sukkot, when the priest would climb the altar and hold up the golden pitcher, and Jesus stood up in that moment and said, whoever thirsts, let him come to me, and I will give him rivers of living water. Remember that? And then the priest would pour the water onto the altar. And that was considered the highlight of the festival. But there was also another part of the festival that had to do with light. Every night of Sukkot, according to the rabbinical literature that we have, we, we see that the Temple Mount itself, the entire temple complex was lit up like Opryland at Christmas. Four huge lamps, each one had 65 liters of oil in them each night. They would burn through that much oil. The priests would climb up to these lanterns at the four corners of the temple complex and light these enormous candelabras. And it would set ablaze the whole temple complex and it was up on the temple mount such that it would give light to the whole city of Jerusalem. It looked as if the whole temple complex was on fire. And men would come up and they would light torches, not flashlights in Australia, actual fire torches. And they would dance and they would sing all night long and the Levitical orchestra would cut loose and play these Hebrew tunes and they would dance and sing praises to the Lord who led them through the wilderness as a pillar of fire by night many generations before that. You know, light is a powerful symbol in the Bible. Remember in the prologue during Advent, we talked about the light of the world that came into the world. John has already told us in chapter 1, verse 4, remember this? In him, in Christ, the preexistent word of God was life, and the life was the light of men. This means that when Jesus showed up on earth, he illuminated the, the true knowledge of a deeper reality than what we can just see or touch or taste or smell. 
He exposed a a moral deficiency among humanity, and he set a new standard of brilliant holiness for God's people. And he shone forth the bright light of God himself, showing us the way to life and salvation and flourishing both in this life and the next. So how people respond to the light that Christ shines is a crucial question and a key theme throughout John's gospel. Remember when Nicodemus came in chapter 3 to to Jesus' place at night because he didn't want anyone to, to see him probably, and Jesus explained the gospel. He explained the good news of salvation to him. He said that God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Remember that? And then a few verses later, he tells Nicodemus that he didn't come to judge the world. The world has already been judged. How? How is the world already judged? By rejecting the light of Christ. See you, Thomas. You did good, buddy. You hung in there. Man, you did great. I'm proud of you. Man, that's tough. The world was judged, it says in verse 19, because the world rejected the light that Christ shone. Look at verse 19. This is the judgment. This is Jesus talking to Nicodemus. The light has come into the world, and the people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. How sad. How tragic that people would love darkness, that they would prefer death and destruction to life and flourishing. What did Jesus mean, though, exactly when he said he was the light of the world? Yes, that means he's our salvation, but what else? In order to really understand the depth of all that Jesus was saying when he claimed to be the light of the world, we need to understand what the Old Testament says about light. Not only did a pillar of light lead God's people out from slavery as they departed Egypt and and then through the wilderness as they moved as a camp of two million people and eventually into the promised land of Canaan, but God's light also protected the people of God. Remember that as they came out of Egypt, the Egyptian army eventually was sent out to pursue them. Pharaoh said, bring them back. I want my slaves back. And, and what happened was a, a pillar of, of cloud that was glowing and, and lit up and brilliant descended in between God's people and the Egyptian army and it threw the Egyptian army into a panic and sent them scattered and flying. <coughs> Excuse me. That glowing cloud is, is a, a physical manifestation of God's weighty, magnificent glory. It's a cloud of God's glory. The the Hebrew word for that kind of physical dwelling of God's glory in a fiery cloud is is called Shekinah glory. It's not a biblical term. It's it's later. The the rabbis termed this kind of dwelling of God's glory Shekinah glory. To experience the Shekinah glory of God was really to die. It was It was too much. It was overwhelming for human faculties to take in the overwhelming presence and glory of God. 
To experience that kind of glory in full force was to face certain death. So God sheathed his glory in a cloud to protect us, to protect his people. He limited his glory in the cloud so that his people wouldn't be destroyed. Just like Jesus was wrapped in humanity so as to protect us, he covered his true and glorious nature as the only son of God except for that one time. Remember the transfiguration? When Jesus' glory was revealed to Peter and James and John, his inner circle up on the the mountain that he brought them to. This is why John writes in John 1.14, my favorite verse in this whole book, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his Shekinah glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. How could John write that? Because he had seen with his own two eyes the face of Jesus Christ transfigured into a brilliance brighter than the sun itself. He had witnessed the glory of Jesus Christ unveiled and unsheathed. So when Jesus says that he is the light of the world, he's not just saying that he can help you navigate through a tunnel and not make a fool of yourself. He's he's not just saying that you're going to have heavenly sunlight all the time and be happy all the time. That's not what he's he's not referring to your psyche or, or seasonal affective disorder either. It's something much deeper and much weightier and more profound than all that. He's saying that he is the Shekinah glory of God revealed to you in me and to the world. He's saying to the Jews here, I am the light of the world. I'm the one who protected you as you left slavery in Egypt. I was the one who guided your ancestors through the wilderness for 40 years. It was I who enveloped the tabernacle in a shroud of glory such that Moses would emerge with his face glowing from having experienced the Shekinah glory of God. It was me who rushed into the temple after Solomon prayed the great prayer of dedication and the whole host of Israel was gathered around the temple and it was the glory of Jesus Christ that entered into that temple that caused the priests to fall on their faces and the Shekinah glory was so thick in that place, the priests were unable to stand and do their jobs. It was Jesus. That's a bold claim indeed. But Jesus doesn't only make a claim about his own identity, he makes a claim about us too. He he then says in verse 12, whoever follows me will not walk in darkness. What a promise. You know, our world is is a dark place, isn't it? We've seen that this week with the, the violence in Virginia. These things can overwhelm us. Unrelenting poverty, the broken marriages, broken families that we see all around us, a government that is in constant conflict and turmoil and so on and so on. But the promise that we have here from Jesus Christ is that if 
we follow him and have the Shekinah light of the glory of God inside us, then we can walk through this dark world with supernatural courage. We can take heart because Jesus Christ, his light has overcome the world. The darkness has not overcome him. We can have strength that comes from a place beyond ourselves and our own human resources. We can know that we are protected, not from the pain, not from the trouble. In this world, you will have tribulation, but we can have protection from the evil within it. The evil cannot touch us because we have the light of Christ. You know, back in 2002, before I went to Australia in the glowworm cave, Woodmont Baptist Church took a group of young kids, I think fourth through eighth graders, to a camp called Cross Point at Campbellsville University. Was anybody here on that trip? I think Lil Cook was on that trip in 2002. She's not here today. I was the worship leader there in 2002. I was a 20-year-old, pretty bratty kid from Belmont University with ripped jeans who led the worship at that camp and taught tennis all summer long at Cross Point Christian Sports Camp. And during that sports camp, I was supposed to do a, a devotion with our, our tennis kids, and uh, I, I ended up teaching 1 John chapter 1, verses 5 through 7, every week to the campers for 10 weeks. Here's what that text says. This is John writing as an old man after his gospel is written. This is the message we've heard from him, from Jesus Christ, with our own ears, and proclaim to you that God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Praise God. And I would take a, a handkerchief, one of these cross point bandanas, and I would tie it around some poor kid's head and say, you know, I'd ask for a volunteer and some poor kid say, I'll do it. I'd say, come here. And I'd tie this thing around their head and I'd say, okay, I'm gonna throw a tennis ball at you and I want you to take your racket and I want you to hit it as hard as you can. Ready, go. And I'd, I'd pretty much bean them in the chest, you know, and all the other kids would laugh and I'm like, oh, what's wrong with you? Come on, that was an easy one. Here, try this one. Oh, it was a softball, man. You're, you're missing it. What's wrong? And they're like, I can't see. It's dark. And I would remind them of the fruitlessness of trying to walk in the dark. That to live the kind of life that God has for us can only be done in the light of God and the knowledge of the Lord Jesus. And I'd make that point that we cannot hope to live the kind of life that God desires for us, the abundant life, the life of flourishing and thriving if we walk in darkness. But Jesus promises more than just this truth that we won't walk in darkness. What else does he say? He says if we follow him, not only will we not walk in darkness, but we'll also have the light of life. That's a powerful thing. It's a big deal. Not only will we have the light of Christ shining into us, we will then become like him, shining forth his light from ourselves everywhere we go. Have you ever known anyone that you would describe as a, a sunbeam? Someone who just lights up a room when they come in? Somebody who has an easygoing nature about themselves, a, 
a contagious laugh, a sweet smile. We have several folks like that in this church. I think the whole Roman family, Tanner, your whole family are, man, you guys have great smiles. You just are so easygoing. You're willing to serve and do whatever is asked of you guys. I think there's, uh, your mom? Yeah, absolutely. Your dad's the same way though. I think, I mean, there's so many people, I couldn't name all of you who are like that in this church, but it's because you have the light of Christ that shines forth from you, a contagious joy about you that makes others glad in Christ. Ephesians 5.8 says that for, for those of us who know Jesus and who've committed our lives to follow him, at one time you were darkness. Not you were in darkness, but you were dark. But the good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ is that now you are light in the Lord. In the Lord is the key phrase. We now have the light of Christ in us, which transforms us into little lighthouses that get to serve as outposts of God's own light into a world that is dark and desperately needs the light of Christ to be shown throughout the world. In Matthew 5, 14, Jesus tells us that we are now the light of the world. He says in John 8, I am the light of the world. Matthew 5, he says, you are the light of the world. A city on a hill, what? Cannot be hidden. It's my prayer for Woodmont Baptist. Paul tells the Philippian church in Philippians 2, 15, in the midst of a dark world, he says, you shine like lights, like stars, the NIV says. What a privilege to not only have the light of Christ shown into us, but to be able to serve as a lighthouse of that light ourselves, to, to be able to shine out the light of Christ into this world. Sadly, though, many people who are confronted with the light of Christ simply pull the shades back down. They simply close the door on it and, and run back to the shadows and turn away from the marvelous light of Christ. In verse 13, the Pharisees reject Jesus' claim to be the light of the world based on a legal technicality. They get into the letter of the law here. The Jewish law said you had to have at least two witnesses in order to verify a claim. So once again, they're questioning the authority by which Jesus is saying these things. What's, what basis do you claim these things? You don't even have two witnesses. And Jesus basically responds in two ways. He tells them, look, I have the authority to claim these things because I come from heaven and I'm going back to heaven. These are divine claims that I'm making. And then he says, and look, if you want two witnesses, you got them. Both me and my father have claimed the exact same things, that I am the son of God come to rescue this fallen world back to myself. If you wanna know God, look at me. Know me and then you'll know God. And he makes another crucial I am statement in verse 24. Look at verse 24. I told you that you would die in your sins. This is not a, a judgment, this is an outreach of hope. For unless you believe that I am he, who I say I am, you will die in your sins. He's given him a life raft. Jesus is sharing the gospel with these people. He longs for them to come out of the darkness and into his marvelous light. But 
first they must believe that what Jesus claims is true, that I am he, that he is who he says he is. But they don't understand. So in verse 25, they ask, who are you? And Jesus just sounds exasperated. It's like me talking to my children. He says, just what I've been telling you from the beginning. I have much to say about you and much to judge, but he who sent me is true. I declare to the world what I've heard from him. He's not making this up on his own. He's faithfully declaring the truth of God. Because his hearers, for the most part at least, failed to accept his, his authoritative teaching, to accept his revelation as directly being from God, which he's been commissioned by the Father to come and reveal to the world, they therefore stand under his divine judgment. In verse 28, Jesus explains that they're gonna figure all this out once they've lifted him up on a cross before the world to die. In that cosmos-changing moment of Jesus' death where he took our sin and shame on himself, they'll understand then what he's talking about. So how do we walk in the light of Christ? He, he makes the condition clear back in verse 12. He says, by following him, you will walk in the light. If you follow Christ. We call this process of following Christ discipleship. It's one of our five purposes here at Woodmont Baptist Church. It's, it's something that this whole year of 2019 we're really trying to focus on. That to, to be the kind of church that God wants us to be, we gotta start with a deep foundation of following Jesus Christ as true disciples. Let's, let's start with that. If you're not plugged into a small group and pouring into other people's lives and having accountability and being poured into other people's lives, you may not fully be on the direct path of discipleship. If you're not serving in ministry somewhere, you, you may not be following Christ fully. If you're not reading God's word and engaging in prayer outside of these walls, you may not be walking in the light of Christ. You know, near our office suite here off the north lobby, there's a beautiful room called the fireside room. It's got a fireplace in it and a leather couch and leather chairs. It's a really nice room. We have a lot of meetings in there. And I've, I've discovered that there's this beautiful recessed lighting in that room. And that if you happen to sit under one of those recessed lights, it's so bright that you kind of become transfigured and you look like you're glowing like Jesus if you sit in that light. So I've been careful when you're meeting with, you know, a, a, a premarital counseling session or a grieving family not to sit under one of those lights because it's like, oh, I'm glowing. You know, I don't want them to, to think that I'm trying to be transfigured or something like that. And it's obvious when I'm in that light and when I'm not. You can tell I'll slide my chair away that I'm not in that light. The same thing's true in my own life. When I'm not walking in the light of Christ, is it because the light moved or because I've slid over here? You know, I heard about a, a cartoon where there was a husband and wife in an old car, one of those old cars where the, the front seat was a bench seat, you know, like those old trucks have. And the, the wife is, is leaning out the passenger window and she said, Honey, we're not as close as we used to be. I used to ride right up here under your arm, right next to you as you drove the truck. And he, in his typical dry male sense, says, well, I haven't moved. 
That's kind of how it is with the light of Christ. The light doesn't move. We withdraw from it. We take ourselves out of the light of Christ. Maybe it's time for you to get plugged back in fully to the light of Christ by following him with all that you are and experiencing the light not only shining into you, but shining out through you as well. Are you following Christ with all that you are, dying to yourself, walking in the marvelous light, being transformed into light yourself? Or are you content to slide over to your side, pursue the things of this world, and you wonder where Christ has gone? He hasn't moved. Let's commit to moving back fully into the light of Christ. In his marvelous light, there's nowhere better to be. Letting his light burst into our souls, removing the decay of sin and sorrow and death and allowing us to shine his light everywhere we go. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you that you have indeed shown the light of the world into our souls. You have called us out of darkness and into your marvelous light, and it truly is marvelous. But God, we, like fools, return to our sin. We return to the shadows. We love the darkness and our evil works more than we love you. And for that, we confess and we return to the light today. God, we know that you are never changing. You are the same yesterday, today, and forever. It's not you that's moved, it's us. So I pray that we would realign ourselves with your light today. That we would follow you, and in doing so, experience the light of Christ in our souls in a profound way that allows us to be transformed into light ourselves. That we would leave this place living as light. That we would shine your light everywhere we go in every encounter that we have. That we would be light to those that need it the most, to those who are living in darkness. God, we thank you for this truth, for your word today. We pray these things in the powerful name of Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. We're going to have a time of invitation now. If you need to come and pray with someone or just want to talk with somebody, uh, I'm going to invite um, Morgan. Will you come up here? I want to ask, yeah, my wife, Morgan. We're missing Trey's up here leading. I think Jan's out of town with her family as well. So I'm going to ask uh, maybe Justin Carpenos, will you come up here and stand up here at the front? If you want to pray with Justin or Morgan during this time, they'll be here or me. If you want to accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior for the very first time, there's no better time to do so than right now. There's no, no more important decision you could possibly make than giving your life over to Jesus. If you haven't done that, I invite you to come and do so now. If you just want to pray with someone again, the altar will be open. Maybe you've been walking in the darkness and you realize it's time for you to come back to the light of the Lord. There is freedom in the light. There is forgiveness in the light. And it's free. It only costs you your whole life as you die to yourself and learn to live through Christ. Through Christ, for Christ, and by Christ, and by his grace. Let's stand and sing now, this time, Anastasis.